All right, guys, this is Dr. David Lamb, dermatologist here in Tarpon Springs, Florida and Trinity, Florida. I've been here for going on 20 some years now. I finally decided to do a podcast. I am mainly doing it for my patients and then uh, a lot of my staff felt like I should do it just to kind of uh, get to know people. And uh, I feel like I'll probably be doing this quite often, maybe not every week, but maybe every two or three weeks. Um, just a little bit about me. I'm a board certified dermatologist. Mainly, I focus on skin cancer, specifically uh, melanoma, basal and squamous cell carcinomas, but I do a lot of general dermatology as well. Um, I've been in the same practice for the last uh, 20 years or so. I uh, used to be over in Tampa, and now I've uh, pretty much limited to Tarpon Springs and Trinity. Today, I have a very special guest. I have Carrie Ann Baim, who is one of the fantastic physician assistants that uh, works with me. We've been working together for a while. Carrie Ann, how you doing? Great. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, me too. Saw you this morning, <laughs> and then you went to your own clinic this afternoon and back. She's got her yoga outfit on because I she's do. wanting to get out here and go do yoga. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I will say this. I used to do yoga for about three years. I did yoga. I did it a lot. And then my wife, she noticed that she called it competitive yoga. And I started to hurt my back and I started to feel crappy all the time. And then I've had other people like my office manager, Deborah Jackson, used to tell me, you know, you're trying to compete with everybody. And finally, I just had to quit because my back started hurting. And then I just went back to playing tennis and doing and fine. That's not the nature of the practice, not a competition. I know, you know just I know, then. but it's mental. I can't get over that, so that's a, that's a big part of it. Okay, before we get started, I do want to acknowledge that Friday is your birthday. So how old are you going to be? I will be turning 26 Friday the 7th, February 7th, and we're here in 2020. So. Congratulations. I, uh, I'm honestly happy. I made it this far. I'm always surprised if I get another birthday in because uh, I have to admit I'm kind of a doomsday kind of guy. I always think that I'm going to actually, you know, not make it to my next birthday. And I don't know why. I've been like that for a long time. Um, so it's one of those things. Okay. So let's talk about you real quickly. We're going to talk about a couple things. Number one, um, I don't know if anybody knows this because you may not know Carrie Ann. You had a melanoma um, mm -hmm. last year actually. Mm -hmm. Right about a year ago. So we found it a year ago. Yeah, so let's we're gonna talk about that in a few minutes. And then the other thing we're gonna talk about is platelet rich plasma. That's something you are really interested in. Mm -hmm. That's something you're tailoring your practice to. Mm -hmm. We'll go over what platelet rich plasma or we're gonna start calling it PRP because mm -hmm. I think if we say platelet rich plasma the whole time it's gonna take forever to get mm -hmm. through this. The other thing I want to say is that I can't say Carrie Ann all the time. I say CA, so I'm not disrespecting her when I say that. The good news is is that Carrie Ann's mom even told me that that's what she calls Carrie Ann, it's CA. So if you hear me say CA, that's what, what's happening. I'm not trying to, uh, to shorten her name by any re reason other than it's just it's too long for me. All right, so Carrie Ann, you grew up in Tampa, right? Right, yeah, here in Tampa. I grew up in the Lutz area, actually. And then from there, um, we went to elementary school here, you know, high school, middle school, the whole thing. Um, and then from there, I went to Florida State University, go Knowles. Um, and I studied exercise, exercise science there. 
Um, and then um, when deciding where to go to PA school, I actually ended up at the University of Utah, um, which was wonderful. I went there. Um, they're very service-oriented, but also um, nationwide. They have good recognition with their PA program there, and um, you know, really thankful for the education and that part. So then I wanted to come back home, and when I, I was deciding where to practice, um, Tampa is where I wanted to be, and I'm happy to be in Tarpon Springs and Trinity. But it's just kind of nice; it all comes full circle, you know. So. So when you did exercise science, like what what exactly do you train in? I mean, uh, to be honest with you, I don't know. I don't think we've ever talked about this yeah, before. Yeah, you know, it, okay. So it's you, you have your normal, your chemistries, microbiology, organic chemistries, but then you have a lot more, a lot of pathophysiology, physiology, um, kinesiology, things like this, and a lot of immunology as well. So the exercise part of it is just kind of assessing all the metabolism parts of things, you know, metabolism one, metabolism two. So I guess that's why they have that aspect of it. Um, but uh, you don't, it's not your normal biology route or chemistry route, it's just a little yeah. bit different. That actually sounds some, something I'd be very interested in. Mm -hmm. Nutrition-wise. Yeah, we take uh, nutrition as well. Yeah, I think that would be awesome. Now, how did you end up in Utah? I mean, you, Florida, I'm sure that you had multiple opportunities mm -hmm. to train in Florida and in surrounding states, Georgia, mm -hmm. Alabama, et cetera. Why did you end up in Utah? Everyone asks me that. Um, it's a great question. So when I was in my interview process, so I, let's see, I was in my senior year of college at Florida State, and essentially I'm trying to think, interview-wise, it was my, it was the fall semester, and I was traveling around to all my interviews. Yes, some in, at University of Florida in the area, um, closer would be Atlanta, Emory, and then all around. Um, and then I went to one of my last interviews in Utah, and I would say what drew me there, and I couldn't say no, was the faculty. Um, Jared Spackman is a PA who I worked with and interviewed with there, and the whole entire faculty there, there was just something different. And um, of course it's beautiful out there, but the reputation of the school, the service-oriented aspect, but just the faculty and what they do nationwide um, is what attracted me there. So when I interviewed, I couldn't say no. Um, there was other opportunity, but it was just, it was more fit. And so I figured if I'm going to do it, um, that's where I wanted to go, and it was worth it. You know, I, it is actually, I don't know how to explain it. So, you know, as I, I was interviewing for my dermatology mm -hmm. residency, this was back in 1998, and there are so many times where I would go and interview, and you know, you like the place, mm -hmm. and you think, oh, this, is, this place has this uh, esteem behind it, and you like all these people. But you just don't get the feeling that you feel like you fit in perfectly there right. or that um, you might flourish there. Mm -hmm. And then there's, it's interesting, you'll go to a place and then all of a sudden you'll get this like warm feeling and you don't know, you can't put your finger on it. Right. But you're like, hey, this is where I fit in. Mm -hmm. And I felt that way on two or three interviews mm -hmm. when, when I did for my residency. And thankfully, where I went was like that. You know, I fit in. I felt like I got a great training. It was for me, even though I would have been fine in other areas. But mm -hmm. I suspect that's kind of how you felt too. Oh yeah, and I would say, you know, anyone who's listening or anyone who has grandchildren considering anything in the medical field when they're interviewing or any interview, it's just it's fit. You know, uh, the title of the school and their reputation is one thing, but at the end of the day, it's fit because you yeah. have to be there and study for hours. So yeah. it really is fit. Um, one of the other things I was going to talk about is I'm sure 
you know, one of our one of my other assistants, Maddie. Um, mm-hmm. Maddie is going to Florida State for mm-hmm. to go to PA school too, and I have a lot of uh, assistants that either go to medical school or to PA school. I'm certain you tossed around the idea of going mm-hmm. to medical school. Almost every PA that I see that's going to PA school does do that. Mm-hmm. Was it the time commitment that was the big issue for you? Hmm. Good question. Um, I would say the time aspect was very attractive um, based on the length of schooling for PA school. It seemed to be more of a fit. I wanted to be able to be in the field practicing medicine sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you do have the part where you're in PA school, it's really what you put in, right? So if you want to have that depth, you do have to put the extra mile in for that. That's mm-hmm. you know, the difference I found. Um, at the time, I like the versatility of the profession as well. I mean, you can change specialties, although I will be in dermatology. Um, weekend things like helping in free clinics and things like that, I find that there is more versatility with that too. Um, but no matter what schooling you can technically you know what I, I would say this I regarding the versatility mm-hmm. part I I would say like I have a lot of people come in and they mm-hmm. have kids or mm-hmm. they'll say hey do you mm-hmm. think my child should consider going to medical school or my daughter or son mm-hmm. want to go to PA school and I actually give them pros and cons both ways right. and I will say like what you were saying you know, if you go to medical school and let's say you end up having uh, a specific specialty or, mm-hmm. or you go into internal medicine uh, or whatever specialty mm-hmm. it is, you're pretty much locked in to that specialty. Like right. if you're going to be a radiologist, you're a radiologist. Unless you go back for another residency, is that correct? Four correct. Years, yeah. Years? I mean, there are, there are some ways you can do mm-hmm. different things, but it would be hard to be trained in radiology and then, yeah. and then become an internist. Right. I think that would be very difficult. Right. Whereas one thing about being a, mm-hmm. a you know a PA is that you can actually move to different areas right. and then you have that flexibility, so I don't discount that as a specific reason to right. consider becoming a PA versus going to medical mm-hmm. school for a lot longer. Plus, I think the time commitment and I also think the cost of education it's is significant. By the time you take in how much it's going to cost to go to medical school, how much you're putting off. I, I think there is definitely mm-hmm. a big decision to make for, for a lot huge. of people. So. It's also in the education about what exactly a PA is, it's still you know still being worked on as well. We have many patients we see day to day. Some are very educated in what a PA is, and other, one, other ones, you know, we have to spend some time to review that as well, which I think as that grows and becomes more common, then um, that'll make it easier too to just know yeah. the exact role and things like that. Yeah, even when you and I are seeing patients, mm-hmm. there, there are some of my patients and, you know, mm-hmm. some of them become your patients, some mm-hmm. of them uh, your patients that see me, mm-hmm. we go back and forth. Um, we have some that are very, obviously, very willing and comfortable to see you, and that's great. And then I have some, you know, because mm-hmm. they, they want to see me and they've been my patients. I, and we're flexible, right. you know. I'm okay right. sending back and forth patients, what have you. I right. think that's great. Um, now, so earlier we mentioned, let's talk about your melanoma. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about, I think if I remember correctly, you actually noticed the spot. Correct. So what happened was I had a um, dark mole on my left calf that I noticed, and I, you know, every time I'd shave my legs or something like this, I would notice it. It was small, just a couple of millimeters. But while I had to do that biopsy, I said, let's just do some other ones too. So I had one on my left upper arm, then two on my back that we did at the same time. So it was actually the one on the leg that said, okay, time to do some biopsies. 
Okay. And then, you know, subsequent. Well, th actually, I'm glad you brought that up. I do think that's an important statement. Here's why. I will tell you, I see so many cancer patients, skin mm -hmm. cancer patients that I see that come in for different things and they're not there to be seen for, for let's say, a routine skin exam. I'll give you a, an example. I saw a patient about a year ago. He had poison ivy on his back, came in for the poison ivy, had been hunting, et cetera, he didn't know what it was. And I said, hey, let's just take a look. And we take a look and he's got a, a melanoma on his left ear. Um, now, he's lucky because we, we, we happen to do that. Mm -hmm. There's been another, uh, for another instance, uh, about 15 years ago, I had a patient that came in for a spot on his neck. I said, hey, let's, let's take a look. I noted that he had an inverted nipple and he ended up, I said, hey, is this is abnormal? Um, have you had this for a while? And he said, yeah, actually, I've only had it for about six months, and we, we end up finding breast cancer. And I will say on a daily basis, I'm not saying once in a while, I'm saying daily, sometimes five times a day, mm -hmm. I find things on people who come in for one specific thing, and then we say, let's go ahead and look you all over, and we find skin cancer. And I'm sure that happens mm -hmm. to you in your clinic too, correct? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And that's the thing is a lot of people, number one, don't get routine skin checks, which is nice, you know, if you're listening, do that annually at least. Um, but also, you know, don't know the importance of, you know, sunscreen uses, all of that. So that's just one thing. Yeah. You just never know. Okay. So you had technically what we call a melanoma in situ. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to explain to people what that means? Or you want me to? Okay. So melanoma in situ, when we're talking about melanomas specifically, we really talk about dysplastic nevi and we talk about melanoma. And here's what I mean. A lot of times I tell my patients, I wish it was black and white, but it's not. Sometimes you'll get a biopsy that you have a normal mole. Sometimes you have a melanoma and then there's a lot of in between. Mm -hmm. There's mildly abnormal mole, moderately to abnormal mole, dysplastic nevi. Now pathologists have atypical junctional melanocytic hyperplasia. We also have some other things like spitz nevi, uh, penetrating nevi, etc. Mm -hmm. Carrie Ann's melanoma was technically a stage zero, so a lot of people um, will ask what stage, and I hear that a lot. Stage zero means at this point there really is no chance of this melanoma spreading to the rest of the body as long as it's treated. Here's why. There are three main layers to the skin. There's the epidermis, which is that top layer. That's what you can visibly see on anybody's skin. You have the middle layer, which is called the, uh, the dermis, which is filled with collagen and elastic fibers and a lot of other things. And then there's the subcutaneous tissue underneath. Um, her melanoma was only in the top layer called the epidermis. Now, if left untreated, it then, however, has the potential to have this vertical growth phase, which means it grows vertically up and down rather than radial, which means it grows out. And when it grows deeper, that's when it does have the potential to have metastatic spread. Metastatic spread means that it has the ability to move into the lymph nodes, moves through the vascular system, and can then subsequently spread 
to other areas of the body. So she was very fortunate mm -hmm. that she had this area uh, identified as quickly as possible. So the way we ended up treating Carrie Ann is we had her come in. Rather than doing what we would call the standard five millimeter margin, we actually took a 10 millimeter margin. We got negative margins the first try, mm -hmm. which means when you look at the statistics, her cure rate is essentially 99.9% .9 or so. Um, as long as it's removed, she should have no other problems. Now, here's the thing. Carrie Ann and I were talking the other day, I think three or four days ago. Your uncle mm -hmm. has also had a melanoma, correct? Correct. Actually, I think two. Two on same spot, just opposite arm. Okay, so mm -hmm. yours was on your left upper arm, mm -hmm. and he's now had two. I actually removed one of them, mm -hmm. and then he had another physician remove the yes. one previously. Mm -hmm. Okay, the reason why that is important is because we do identify individuals and families who have this genetic predisposition mm -hmm. to having melanoma. Right. Um, sometimes we worry if you have this genetic predisposition, might there be an abnormal gene that's being transferred mm -hmm. from family members to family members. Right. So when Carrie Ann and I were just casually talking the other day, I said, do you have anyone in your family who's had pancreatic cancer? Mm -hmm. And your answer was? Yes, my maternal grandmother. So the uncle, same side as the uncle who's had melanoma, that grandmother, his mom, had um, pancreatic cancer. Okay. The reason why that's important is the following. Uh, there are some family melanoma genetic syndromes that are associated with both melanoma and some other cancers. One of them is called CDKN2A. That is the most genetic or the most common genetic family syndrome for melanoma. Mm -hmm. If you're talking about family genetics and melanoma, approximately 40% of people who have a family history of melanoma and, it's, and we think it's related is related to this gene CDKN2A. Mm -hmm. And both that gene makes two different what we call tumor suppressor genes. One is P16, one is P14. And if either one of those becomes abnormal, it increases your risk of getting melanoma. Well, interestingly, the other cancer that's common in those families is pancreatic mm -hmm. cancer. In the US, southern US, and in Australia, if you've had two family members mm -hmm. with melanoma and one with pancreatic cancer, mm -hmm. we actually recommend doing genetic testing. Right. Now, here's the thing. Yours was a melanoma in situ. So technically, we actually say to people if it's invasive melanoma to do the genetic testing. Right. However, since I'm almost twice as old as you, uh, mm -hmm. I would suggest that we send you to a geneticist mm -hmm. or an oncologist just to get the testing done. Right. And my wife, I was talking to her the other mm -hmm. day and she said, well, you know, my mom had pancreatic cancer. Should I get tested? And she's like, I think people would want to know how to get tested. If that if that's the case, right. well, what do you do? How, you know, how do I find a geneticist? Well, that's a good question. There are actually geneticists around. Now, I will say it's not like there are a ton of them around. Mm -hmm. So you do have to do a little research mm -hmm. to find them. But the other the other uh, group of individuals who can do this is actually oncologists. Mm -hmm. uh, oncologists are very well versed at how to order these tests. They do have panels. 
they have um, uh, testing panels that you can actually send off uh, or draw blood and, and send patients blood off to do these panels and I think it'd be worthwhile mm -hmm. for you to do that mm -hmm. here's why I think that's important if you do have one of those genetic predispositions and you let's say you had a predisposition to get pancreatic cancer mm -hmm. you'd, you'd want to potentially get um, ultrasounds mm -hmm. uh, periodically mm -hmm. to check the pancreas, etc. Mm -hmm. Plus, if you ever have children, obviously you mm -hmm. want to to uh, be able to uh, educate them on that mm -hmm. as well. Um, and then the other thing is, is that if you end up uh, marrying someone mm -hmm. or not marrying but having kids or whatever, you want to know their genetic mm -hmm. background as well. And you know that that becomes an important thing so uh, there are other genetic syndromes for for melanoma that increase your risk of brain cancer there's one that causes something called astrocytomas mm -hmm. um, there are other brain tumors that can develop mesotheliomas and something called mm -hmm. BAP1 syndrome. Um, you have renal cell carcinomas and some. And so uh, even in patients, and I'm, a lot of people listening have probably heard of the BRCA gene, mm -hmm. especially women. You know, women, both men and women can get BRCA gene right. um, abnormalities, but we talk about breast cancer in women a lot. Mm -hmm. And we talk about BRCA1 and BRCA2, mm -hmm. you know, those women, specifically are at an increased risk of breast cancer and then sometimes colon cancer, uterine cancer, yeah. and some others. Well, they're actually also have an increased risk of um, uh, melanoma as well. And because there's an overlap of pancreatic cancer, both with CDKN2A and also BRCA gene testing, sometimes you might want to get both. Mm -hmm. We might want to send you for both BRCA and uh, mm -hmm. CDKN2A. Have you had anybody in your family with breast cancer at all? No, not anyone that I can identify, but I will need to dig a little bit deeper into yeah. th and things like that. But okay. um, I don't know of anyone with that. But melanoma is going strong, so, you know. Well, let's talk about now that you've had a melanoma, let's talk about your how you feel about that yeah. and what you do specifically. Because, you know, that's the other thing that, mm -hmm. that patients ask me all the time. I have a patient who has a melanoma and they're like, okay, am I pretty much going to have to be inside my entire life? And I usually answer, no, you need to live your life. Mm -hmm. But you just have to do it within a framework of, mm -hmm. hey, I've got a melanoma. So how do you, knowing that you see patients, you've had mm -hmm. melanoma, how do you approach it? Yeah, it's totally different now. Um, and I think knowledge really is power, right? So first of all, I'm thankful to even be in this profession because I assume if I wasn't in dermatology, I don't know how quickly that would have been found, if ever. Um, so that's pretty, uh, uh, you know, aligned in a really uh, neat way. But as far as my lifestyle, um, so growing up, I didn't. I lived in Florida, of course, so I, I got a, a good amount of sun uh, naturally. But I was always pretty protected with sunscreen, and you know, my family did a good job of that. Um, so I do think the genetic component we've talked about so much um, played a large role in my melanoma. Um, but now, I mean, I'm cautious. I wear. So I commute to work what, probably 35 or 40 minutes and on the way home here when I'm done I'll wear a long sleeve shirt when I drive or even driving gloves even though they look a little silly but you know you got to do, do what do you Do you wear do. driving gloves? Yeah, I'll just Do you really? Yeah, um Cooley Bar has them and they're specific dermatology ones they go up to here. Uh, up to my upper arm and I wear them if it's really sunny mm -hmm. and I did not do that before my melanoma um, and of course I'll put on sunscreen every day and sometimes I'll reapply it uh, midday if I'm gonna be outside for an extended amount of time I'll wear the UPF shirts um, I like the ones that Athleta doesn't matter but you can get them online but I wear those all the time 
and I'm wearing sunscreen and I reapply it every hour and a half to two hours. Um, but when it comes to that's just my normal practices, you know, other than wearing hats when I'm outside, I do have a different opinion of having a uh, sun exposure. But when it comes to my um, daily practice, um, you know, seeing patients all day, it does give me a different level of empathy um, because a lot of people don't like to always get biopsies or they don't understand why we pick the um, moles we pick to remove. So, you know, having the history of, hey, I've had something taken off, didn't expect it to be a melanoma, it was, um, adds an extra layer to my practice. So, um, you know, I, I'm really here, of course, to treat all sorts of things in dermatology, but, you know, when we find melanoma, we essentially can help, you know, prevent and save, save, save them, essentially. So um, it's changed my practice immensely um, and being able to relate to patients in that way. It's yeah, been neat. that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, here's what I would say um, a couple things. Number one, uh, melanoma, I think there are probably multiple potential causative factors mm -hmm. for melanoma. Mm -hmm. I think there's a definitive genetic mm -hmm. component mm -hmm. to melanoma. Uh, I think some people have this genetic predisposition, not only in genes that are abnormal mm -hmm. where they can't repair damage, but I also think we probably have individuals who have a, a higher likelihood because of just the way their immune system works. Mm -hmm. I think some people's immune system probably isn't as effective as, as repairing damage. Uh, we know that because there are some conditions like xeroderma pigmentosa mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where they have this inability to repair um, what we call nucleotide mm -hmm. excision repair and repairing the damage. We also have people who have red hair, uh, mm -hmm. tend to have blue eyes, light colored skin. Now, they have just the ability to, t to burn, but also st uh, studies show that when their melanin, which is called pheomelanin, mm -hmm. gets uh, radiated by ultraviolet light, mm -hmm. they have this weird oxidative reaction that occurs that individuals who have something called eumelanin, those are individuals who tend to mm -hmm. be more brown, mm -hmm. those people do not have the oxidative right. stress. So even there, just with that alone, there, mm -hmm. there there's two different things. Number one, they, they can't tan very well, and mm -hmm. so they're burned more easily. But even when they do get just normal amounts of UV light, their oxidation levels are so high that they can't repair the mm -hmm. DNA damage. And I think there are so many different reasons why, right. why people get damaged. So that's the thing. It's hard to pinpoint for a lot of people. Like you said, mm -hmm. you're, you're using sunscreen, et cetera, sure. because I think you probably do have a somewhat right. of a genetic predisposition. Yeah. But I don't all, always think that everybody that has melanoma is because of the sunlight, but it is a factor yes. for most people. And I do think using sunscreens can be helpful. There are some studies now, because for a long time, there was this big debate as do really sunscreens really reduce your risk of melanoma. For a long time, there were really no studies, mm -hmm. but approximately four years ago, there was an Australian study that came out with a big number of patients, and it did suggest significant reduction in melanoma. So I do think using mm -hmm. sunscreens, but here's where I think the fallacy of sunscreens happens, is that we have individuals who will use sunscreen and they'll go to the beach, and let's say if you didn't have sunscreen, you might have hung out at the beach for an hour. Let's mm -hmm. say from 10 o'clock to 11 mm -hmm. o'clock. I think what happens is, is that a lot of us will put sunscreen on, mm -hmm. 
we'll put it on at 10 and you'll stay out till 4. Mm -hmm. Now that's six straight hours, you might reapply one time, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the thing is you get into this fixed false belief that somehow that sunscreen is preventing you from getting sun damage. When you're using sunscreen, you're not 100% blocking mm -hmm. any of that, or you're not mm -hmm. blocking that all of that ultraviolet light. Plus, you're out there six times longer than you would have been had you not used sunscreen. So you end up changing your actual biologic behavior because of usage of sunscreen. Mm -hmm. So you have to be knowledgeable about using it and using it within the framework of the studies that were done rather than just saying, oh, I'm going to use sunscreen, I'll be fine. Mm -hmm. That's not the way it works. Right. Plus, I hear a lot of patients say, I don't want to wear a hat because it's too hot. I don't mm. want to do this, don't want to do that. I, I will say, I think it's very appropriate to do that. But the other thing is, is I think people need to come in and get examined because if you find melanoma like yours, mm -hmm. melanoma in situ, Early. before mm -hmm. it's become invasive, most people will be absolutely fine. Even if you find an invasive melanoma, but it's superficial, let's say less than mm -hmm. 0.8 millimeters in mm -hmm. depth, your cure rate still approaches 97%, mm -hmm. 98%. But once it's reached that point where it's much deeper, more than about 0.8 millimeters in depth, the cure rates precipitously drop. If you're, depending on which stage three you are, your mm -hmm. cure rate might drop to 30%. Right. Stage four melanomas drop significantly. So like you right. were saying, you might have it might have been fortuitous it could have been that you didn't do orthopedics. Right. That you ended right. up doing dermatology. Yeah, um, would have known. And so I think that's a that's a big thing. The other thing I wanted to address mm -hmm. is your point about patients not quite understanding why we take biopsies. Right. Do you get that a lot? Yeah, um, you know, it's nice because a lot of patients are very aware of their skin. So they are watching moles themselves and they're curious about what we're removing. Um, so many times I'll show patients our patients the photo of the spot we're removing and a lot of people do ask you know why is it that you pick that one so yeah. I, you know that's a dif that's difficult you know other than the clinical judgment seeing it all day I mean we see how however many hundreds of thousands of moles you know yeah well that at some point I would like to have um, Dr. Vasalutis mm -hmm. on Dr. Vasalutis uh, and I have been working together mm -hmm. for for I think 17 18 years now he, you know, mm -hmm. obviously he's got some theories uh, embryologically about how we all develop and where to be looking for melanomas. Right. You know, when he first told me about his idea I, three, four years ago, I have to admit I was a little skeptical about whether there was validity to his ideas. But then the more we talked and then the more he was showing me data of all the melanomas that we were finding in our practice, I have to admit I'm 99% I'm, I'm mm -hmm. convinced he's right. Now, I'm not saying that all the other data from other places is not is incorrect. I'm just saying that I think his is going to be a very appropriate approach mm -hmm. to identifying melanomas because where we're where I don't think 5 years ago when I was looking for melanomas, I would have have looked in certain specific areas because mm -hmm. of his theories now I am going to specific areas and saying, "Hey, let's try these." So what I'm referring to is the following. His embryologic data suggests that we might be finding melanomas in some areas on the scalp, face, upper extremities, upper chest, and thighs and lower legs in certain specific areas. Mm -hmm. 
I have been incorporating that into my practice and mm -hmm. it's really uh, increased my identification of melanomas probably by 30%. Which, you know, if we're finding right now we're probably averaging three to four melanomas a day in our practice, then that's just for me, you, and, and Katie Rayberg, mm -hmm. one of our other assistants, just in these two offices we're probably averaging um, four melanomas a day. Um, that probably ends up being, what, about 120 patients. Mm -hmm. um, if you go by statistics, most of the time I would say you'd find a half a melanoma oh. a, a every day. So we're literally beating that by probably eight times. Oh, yeah. So either we're doing something different that everyone else is doing, or, or we're finding that everyone else would be finding these melanomas if they were right. using some of the principles we right. were doing. I, that's what I'm struggling with, is to say, hey, listen, yeah. would we really be finding more melanomas? And I think we would, actually. Yeah. Being When I say we, I mean all of dermatologists, mm -hmm. yeah. et cetera. Um, and so the last thing I want to address is this question of patients saying, why do you examine these areas? Well, that's a very difficult answer. I, I don't always have a perfect answer for everybody. I know that most of our listeners out there, they they hear A, B, C, Ds, and, and Dr. Vasiludis has added F, G, H, I, etc. You know, asymmetry, border irregularity, color changing, diameter greater than six millimeters, mm -hmm. evolving, that's the A, B, C, Ds. I will tell you though, if you look at the melanomas that I'm finding, that you're finding, mm -hmm. that our practice is finding, I would say that only 20 to 25% of most. them are meeting that criteria. 75% mm -hmm. of them are, are neva or melanomas that would literally not meet more than one of those characteristics, mm -hmm. if at all. Mm -hmm. And the problem we're having is that we've taught all of our patients this, but then we are not, when we're identifying locations on the body, mm -hmm. we're identifying areas that are what I would call the ugly duckling sign. Right. Sometimes I think patients have a sixth sense of things. Sometimes I think yes. I have a sixth sense yes. of things. Um, I, it's hard to really say why. Now, a lot of people, you know, like mm -hmm. you're talking about, They'll come in, and I, I've had patients who've had three, four. I, I have one patient who's had 17 melanomas, and and I still, from those individuals, will still get a lot of of questions of why are you biopsying these? Don't you think that's too many? And the answer is pretty much no, I don't. And I would tell you that if if I have a patient who's had more than two melanomas, and then they seek out another dermatologist because they think we're biopsying too much. And I have had that happen before. Um, and that dermatologist is not biopsying routinely on those patients. I will tell you that I think they're doing their patients a significant disservice. Mm -hmm. um, do I, I will say this, I think all dermatologists, I think all physicians get swayed by other, um, by our patients too right. though. So if we have a patient who comes in and they give us somewhat resistance, it does it does make it a little uncomfortable. Tough, yeah. Don't it's you think tough. so? Very tough. Very tough. And you have this conversation with your patients as mm -hmm. well. Okay. Because it's hard because you know they come in and they, they, they don't want to have the biopsy and I get it. It's uncomfortable. They have to walk around with a scab mm -hmm. and a sore that won't we all heal for different too. That's yeah. The thing. Some, Some people get keloids, mm -hmm. you get you get bad scars, right. they itch and right. then 
have to come back. Sometimes I have yeah. to treat them. And I get it, and it makes it sometimes uncomfortable. But I will say that I at least try my best to explain why we do it. But I don't think all the time, number one, I'm, I'm, I'm not all the time convincing enough, I don't think. Right. And then I think um, sometimes I, I think maybe, um, maybe it's hard to explain, and I can't come up with a great answer other than, hey, they look different. They just, I feel like it's different. And I don't know, I think this might be where the quote art of medicine comes in. Right. Uh, that's a you good know. way to put it. I mean, it was just today I had um, some pushback on some biopsies, which I understand. And, you know, it's also hard going provider to provide or different practices and things like that because we do do it a uh, different way than maybe the other locations at different spots and different practices. Um, but I think it's just sometimes taking the time to slow down and explain like what we're explaining here and with everyone's history, you know, why it is important, but sometimes diff more difficult than others. So. Yeah, and for me, you know, when we're talking about the three most common skin cancers, mm -hmm. you know, I, there are many, many skin cancers mm -hmm. that we deal with, but the three most common that everyone knows, um, we have melanoma, squamous cell carcinoma, basal cell carcinoma. We, every dermatologist, every person seeing we all miss things. Yeah. Believe me, I've missed many things in my career. I know that any dermatologist saying they haven't is a liar. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you, they're straight out not telling you the truth. Mm -hmm. um, we all miss them. I get patients that come to see me from other people and they say, so-and-so missed it. And I, I try to be very equivocal in this mm -hmm. situation because it happens to me. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you see things and, and you don't see it and you miss it and, mm -hmm. and it happens. Right. And, and all I can say to a lot of people is, yeah, I'm sorry, it, it sucks. But missing a basal cell carcinoma and missing a squamous cell carcinoma for the most part are so significantly different than missing a melanoma. Mm -hmm. Melanoma is so dangerous if, if not caught or left untreated. Mm -hmm. Whereas with basal and squamous cells, obviously they can be disfiguring because of, of the way they grow, et cetera. But Missing one of those is most likely not going to cause someone their life. Right. But missing a melanoma, if you miss that and it causes someone your life, I don't know. That would be very hard. To, mm -hmm. That's very hard to deal with mm -hmm. when that happens. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, trying to convince people is tough, but mm -hmm. it's something we all have to do. Right. And um, just to take the extra time to give the education is is a huge part of it. Yeah. Like. Yeah, at some point, like I said, we'll, we'll talk to Dr. Vesalutis. Sometimes, at mm -hmm. some time in the future too, I would like to get one of my oncology friends on. I'd really like to talk about um, some, of the, uh, some of the genetic changes that occur, BRAF mutations, mm -hmm. MEC uh, changes, um, things with uh, tyrosinase, tyrosinase kinase uh, changes and these, these uh, uh, tumor suppressor genes, et cetera, that uh, can cause melanoma. I think we should talk about uh, treatments for metastatic melanoma. Mm -hmm. Surgical, maybe we'd talk to some of our um, uh, melanoma surgeons for, for those melanomas that we can't do in the office. Right. And I would say 98% of all the melanomas we do here, right. but there are some times we do have to send patients out. Maybe we should have uh, a melanoma surgeon on and discuss what goes on with that too. Right. Um, okay, I think we've talked about melanoma enough. Now let's get to the real issue of why we want to talk, and, and mainly I wanted you to have this platform to be able to talk about 
PRP. Mm -hmm. So if you don't mind, explain to us what PRP stands for, explain what it is, and then I think what we'll do is kind of banter back and forth and kind of fill in some gaps right. of, of things that maybe people who are listening may not exactly understand, and I think we can add some education value to that that'd, too. That'd be wonderful. Okay. Um, so uh, platelet, platelet rich plasma, or PRP, essentially um, it comes within your body so when you have blood there's different components of your blood and we can spin it down and um, take your platelets um, that's a component when we spin it down in a centrifuge and it can be used for multiple things so your platelets or sometimes people even call it liquid gold because it has that appearance um, can be used for multiple things uh, the PRP has been used in um, orthopedic settings um, for joint injections and, and multiple other wound care settings um, because PRP is known to um, help with healing processes, um, increase growth factors and collagen reproduction in the skin as well. Um, so in the dermatology world, it's something that um, a lot of people are interested in and practicing with, but it's um, exciting because we are initiating that in our practice as well. Um, so uses for it specifically in dermatology, um, you know, a lot of times when people have hair loss, it's really frustrating because number one, the appearance part, but also, um, you know, just the, the, the loss and not having many treatment options. There are FDA approved treatments like finasteride, minoxidil, things like this, which we can talk about. Um, but, and there's injections that can be done, but it's interesting to think about the route of actually um, taking your own platelets and um, injecting it into the scalp for hair loss to um, promote regeneration of the hair um, follicles there and um, turnover. Um, other ways we're going to be using it and we use it now uh, would be you can actually microneedle the um, PRP into your skin um, and that helps with a multitude of things which we can talk about and um, wound healing we have a lot of wounds here um, that we follow up on so we can also inject it there um, and just a lot of a lot of ways to use your own plasma that can be utilized and um, so we're just you know going to be going down that that route so it's pretty exciting. Well, okay, so let's go back and start. One of the things I, I think you mentioned was taking your own blood. Right. Okay, so let's say that a patient comes in, right? Yes. And you're actually going to be drawing blood yes. from their vein, correct? Correct. Okay, so when we draw blood, let's say that you were to go to Red Cross and donate blood mm -hmm. to uh, to the Red Cross and you go donate a pint of blood and it just comes out and you see blood right the question is what is really in your blood mm -hmm. all right so here's what we know you have red blood cells mm -hmm. which everyone has heard of red blood right. cells right and then you have white blood cells mm -hmm. white blood cells include monocytes uh, part of monocytes mm -hmm. is macrophages you have um, uh, T cells, B cells, which are leukocytes, and then you also have neutrophils. Mm -hmm. These are different types of white blood cells mm -hmm. that are in your body, part of your immune system. Right. And then you have platelets. Mm -hmm. Platelets also come from the bone marrow, which is where red blood cells right. and white blood cells come from. And then you have this ubiquitous thing called plasma, mm -hmm. which, you know, a lot of people have seen plasma, they just probably have never realized it. Right. Let's say you get cut. Right. And then you have a scab, but you still, you're not bleeding, but you still have this yellow kind of clear mm -hmm. fluid coming out. That's plasma. Right. You know, so right. that's that's what helps carry 
all this other stuff that's in your bloodstream. Now, we can't sit here and talk about all that other stuff, but there's thousands of things going in there. Your cholesterol is in there, right. uh, albumin, uh, all these other things. But when right. you when they come in and you mentioned a centrifuge, so right. walk me through that process. You're going to take their blood. Right. So they're going to come in uh, in a great setting, but they're going to come in and, you know, we'll draw a small amount of blood. So they'll they'll, you know, we'll be holding a stress ball there and we'll actually use a most likely little butterfly needles is what we mm -hmm. have prepared um, to draw their blood. So the blood will be taken um, and it'll be a pretty simple process and, and that takes how long? Ten the, minutes? To the, for them to just have the blood yeah. draw? Just two minutes probably two minutes? for the blood draw. Okay. Um, and then we're gonna take it and um, depending what the procedure they're having done, you know, they'll have cream to numb the areas if it's microneedling, if it's just scalp injections, they'll wait there. Um, and then we will put the tube into a centrifuge, which um, essentially will take that and it'll spin it. Um, there's different RPMs or speeds. Um, so we will set it to a certain speed for about 10 minutes. And then at the end of that, the um, it's broken down completely the blood, um, and then that's where we have the plasma that we're able to separate accordingly. Okay. So the way I try to explain to people mm -hmm. what a centrifuge is, because I don't, I, I know that us being yeah, we scientists, know. We know, you know, we tough. all mm -hmm. went to chemistry lab, oh, physics geez. lab, whatever we Good all did. Times. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so we a centrifuge. I like to think of it is that ride at the state fair where you get on the edge you and they you know you they spin the teacups yeah. or whatever that's a centrifuge yeah and what you're doing is using centripetal force and that's essentially gravity right, right? and what you're doing is you're separating the components of the blood by mm -hmm. using gravitational force Mm -hmm. And what does that do? Density. That essentially takes denser products and moves them up and down this mm -hmm. fluid column. So imagine a test tube and you're using gravity, but you're using gravity in a way that you're doing it in two minutes or 10 minutes rather than waiting for it to settle and mm -hmm. pull down. So when we spin it with a centrifuge, what mm -hmm. you end up with is the following. You end up with red blood cells mm -hmm. at the bottom, mm -hmm. right? They're dense Dentist. and they're packed. And then you have this what called buffy coat, mm -hmm. which is that white blood mm -hmm. cell layer that contains macrophages, neutrophils, mm -hmm. leukocytes, etc. And then on top of that is the platelet-rich plasma. So that's the part of the plasma that has the platelets mm -hmm. in it. Mm -hmm. And then above that is the platelet poor right. plasma or right. PPP. Mm -hmm. And what you were saying earlier, um, you know, there are actually different kits you can order right. and techniques yeah there are different mm -hmm. techniques and the problem is right now in prp therapy no one knows which one is better exactly no one knows exactly. if it's this kit or this kit but mm -hmm. what they do know is that prp is effective it is um and so what you mentioned earlier now let's talk about specifically platelets mm -hmm. okay so I know we were talking the other day about platelets in general. You know, platelets are an actual cell mm -hmm. uh, from the bone marrow, but they contain granules. You know, normally these platelets have what, I think somewhere between 80 to 100 granules within them. And these granules contain what you were talking about earlier, growth factors. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing, you know, we talk about this term growth factor um, and when we're talking about growth factors themselves, 
Um, I'm just going to list a few just mm -hmm. so we can throw them out there. Um, we, we have something called vascular endothelial mm -hmm. growth factor. What does mm -hmm. that do? Mm -hmm. Well, that stimulates blood vessel growth. Okay, mm -hmm. why is that important? Mm -hmm. Well, growing cells need nutrition. Mm -hmm. When you're stimulating blood vessel growth, you're bring, mm -hmm. bringing in these new blood vessels, you're bringing in blood flow. That's very important. That's something that platelets have in those granules. Right. We also have fibroblast growth right. factor. Right, huge. Yeah, so fibroblast growth factor, mm -hmm. people probably don't know what a fibroblast is. A fibroblast is the cell in the middle of the skin that produces collagen. Right. Collagen makes you, you look youthful. You've heard of people getting, quote, collagen injections. Those kinds of things can be very helpful. Right. There's something called platelet-derived growth factor. Mm -hmm. Now, that sounds weird, right? Platelet-derived growth right. factor. So what does that mean? It's, it's a growth factor that comes from platelets. Right. But what does it do? It actually attracts other platelets. So it literally brings other platelets in. Mm -hmm. It makes platelets um, become kind of uh, uh, where they want to be around each other. Right. That kind of thing. That's very helpful. For healing too. Exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, hepatocyte growth factor, which weirdly, hepatocyte means liver cell. It's a weird name, but it can actually be very effective in helping foster growth, that kind of thing. That's helpful. Something called insulin-like growth factor. Okay, what does that mean? It's like insulin, mm -hmm. but it's not insulin. Mm -hmm. It's a growth factor. It really, the reason why that's important is you were talking about hair growth. The, the, some of the cells in the hairs rely on insulin-like growth factor for growth. So using that, that kind of thing, something called matrix metalloproteinases mm -hmm. or MMPs, these are, uh, can help uh, essentially reshape mm -hmm. the, the middle layer of skin, this, this collagen layer. Yeah. Um, and then other, other things that go along, we, we call these, some of these things we call growth factors. Right. Some of them are called chemokines. Some of them are called cytokines. Mm -hmm. Some of them act in this weird hormonal way. Some of them act in what we call a paracrine fashion. All in all, what we're saying is, is that platelets, what you need to know is platelets are a cell. They have a lot of things in that cell. And when you inject platelets into these areas where you're using them, you're releasing all of these growth factors that can really help stimulate growth remodel, et cetera. And is that I, correct? And that is correct. And the nice thing is there is research, you know, an immense amount to back that as well. Um, and the crazy part of all of this too is that it's inside of you. And this is our own blood we're talking about, our own plasma. So all of these benefits we're talking about are, you know, within our own um, blood and plasma we're talking about, which is really neat too. So, you know, when, when you inject various different things, you know, you think about rejection, side effects, and such, but when it's your own natural plasma, um, there's quite a benefit with that as well. Yeah, you know, um, one of the things I um, wanted to talk about is when I was thinking about this a while ago, um, when we do PRP, technically by definition, we're saying that we're concentrating the platelets so let's say you take a, a, just a blood test and sure. you, you go to the doctor and then they give you your blood count, right? Mm -hmm. And you hear that all the time. Oh, my, my blood count looked fine or whatever. So they, they do a platelet count. And normally the platelet count is between 150 and 450. Mm -hmm. um, that really is 150,000 mm -hmm. to 450,000. Mm -hmm. But when you're actually doing that centrifuge and you're spinning the blood down, you're actually increasing that concentration to significantly higher levels per 
amount, meaning like if you took one milliliter of blood, mm -hmm. the concentration is going to be standard blood, somewhere between 150 to 450,000. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. But if you do the centrifuge part and then you just remove that plasma, now the concentration is like a million mm -hmm. or two million per part. So when you're injecting, you're actually injecting a higher concentration. And the reason why I bring that up is if you're thinking about it, someone might say, well, why don't you just take blood out and then, and then just inject it right back in? Mm -hmm. I mean, it would be really mm -hmm. a good question. But I think in this situation, we're talking about concentrated. Mm -hmm. That's like saying you get concentrated cleaner, right. you know, and then you right. have a dilute cleaner. Right. What's going to work better? For the most part, the concentrated cleaner going to work better, mm -hmm. at least in my mind, that's how mm -hmm. it works. I'm not that smart, but that's what I would say. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's very appropriate. Okay, so what you were saying earlier, one thing I wanted to uh, let everybody know is um, when I, uh, 15 years ago, when I heard about PRP, really where I heard about it was in sports. Right. You know, uh, you'd hear about Tiger Woods mm -hmm. or you'd hear about all these individuals going to Europe to get these PRP injections. And you know, I didn't learn anything about PRP when I was in medical mm -hmm. school. I really didn't learn about it during my residency. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what is this PRP? I would read some articles, uh, you know, in the news, but I, I really thought this was just, mm -hmm. you know, whatever, it's kind of holistic medicine. Yep. But the more I read, you know, you're doing research, mm -hmm. there are numerous, numerous studies. I, I think um, it's becoming way more accepted now right. as it. a standard treatment uh, for a lot of things. So what you were saying earlier, um, you use it, um, we can use it for hair, especially hair loss. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the two types of hair loss I think you and I see mm -hmm. all the time. One is alopecia areata. Right. And then number two, we see androgenetic alopecia. Mm -hmm. Andro meaning hormonal, mm -hmm. genetic meaning that you get it genetically, and then alopecia is just a term. I have a lot of patients come in and say, I have alopecia. They think it's a specific diagnosis. Alopecia really just means hair loss. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about androgenetic alopecia, that's that type of alopecia or hair loss that you get because your dad's bald and now you're bald. Oh yeah. Right? And, yes. And um, as far as treat, you know, who it's indicated for, um, I think we would lean more towards that side. But I would say if you're having hair loss and you want to try something varied, it's a good varied treatment, you know, for both populations. But as far as Specifically, the research is geared toward more of that genetic side of things. So you would be doing, you're doing really both men and women. Oh, yeah. It's not just for women, because I think a lot of people might be like, this is just something for females. Oh, no. So if you had a young male, let's say mm -hmm. he's, he's, he's 25, and then let's say he's starting to lose his hair. It'd be a great time. This is a person that you would treat. Oh, yeah, it'd be a great time for him to come in and, and you know, start off with three treatments about a month four to six weeks apart and then we could follow up annually or so and check in with things but you know to use your own um, plasma there is something that could be ongoing or just a touch-up therapy but males and females with thinning and hair loss um, or also females who just want to see if they can get some thickness and males too it's something um, to attempt as well you know you know the only reason I'm always excited about this is because honestly for the last 21 years, mm -hmm. I really, really don't have a lot to offer 
For hair. For hair. I mean, really, if you think about it. So, like, when I see a female that comes in for hair loss, right? Um, we have females that come in all the time for hair loss. It's tough because um, the things that cause hair loss, hormones, mm -hmm. menopause, that's so tough. It's so difficult. emotionally difficult. The things that we have to offer, you know, men when they have hair loss, like you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier, you can take finasteride. Mm -hmm. How effective is finasteride? I don't know that it's extremely effective, but I think it's at least partially effective. Mm -hmm. The thing we can offer is Rogaine. Mm -hmm. You know, Rogaine, how effective is Rogaine? I will tell you that I think Rogaine is maybe mildly effective. Mm -hmm. But it is definitely not going to prevent people right. from going bald. Right. Uh, other options are to give people um, medicines like spironolactone, sure. which you know about, obviously. Mm -hmm. That is a blood pressure pill, mm -hmm. pill, weirdly. But one of the side effects or one of the alternative effects of, of spironolactone is that it can really help uh, control some of the excessive, more male-like hormones that cause us to mm -hmm. lose their hair. But even that is not that effective. Hair transplants, that's another alternative. And then we have laser therapy. Now, there are some FDA-approved mm -hmm. devices for, mm -hmm. for laser hair uh, regrowth, but I don't think they're that effective either. Mm -hmm. And now you and some others in our practice mm -hmm. are, are doing PRP, and you're literally saying, I'm actually going to the source. Mm -hmm. I am injecting mm -hmm. right into the scalp, right mm -hmm. in that layer of the dermis in the top part of the mm -hmm. sub-Q fat where the hair papillae, that is the mm -hmm. area. And I like to tell people, uh, I know I'm talking a lot, I'm sorry. You, you interrupt That's me good. if you think no, I'm yeah, talking too good. much, okay, Karen? Everyone wants to hear it. I know, okay, so what I like to tell people is that when you're thinking about a hair, think about it like a flower, right? You have, let's say you take a tulip. Right, and the Favorite bulb, is it really? It oh, is. you know, see, this is just my intuitive nature, it, <laughs> I, I tell you, it's just. And in February, they start they start showing up everywhere. Florida, yeah. we don't really grow them, but I've seen them everywhere, yeah. right around I, my birthday. I know, we're like simpatico, you know. Anyway. Okay, all right, so <laughs> when you think about a hair, though, when you look at it microscopically, right, there's a the root or the bulb of the flower. That's exactly what we have mm -hmm. in a hair. There is the hair papillae, the, this papillae is really like this this tissue that comes from underneath mm -hmm. and it's like the precursor it's what supplies all the blood flow it's what supplies the growth factors and then you have this nice shape of little bulb around that and then the hair grows up and then when it comes out of the scalp that's the tulip right mm -hmm. it's the pretty beautiful flower we all some people have red hair some people have brown some people have blonde some mm -hmm. people have black it's like a flower, all different colors. Now, what you're saying is you're actually taking a needle mm -hmm. and injecting this PRP directly into that papilla and actually releasing those chemicals, chemokines, uh, mm -hmm. growth factors mm -hmm. to stimulate growth. Right. How cool is that? It, it's amazing. And it's nice to have options for patients because especially with hair, hair loss and, and thinning, I mean, it gets discouraging. So for there to be an option that, you know, kind of comes with, from within in, this, in a sense is really promising um, and it, it should have good results or it will. Yeah. Now, the other things I know um, you mentioned previously, and let's describe, so we're talking about, 
let's talk about acne scars. Oh, yeah. That's the other thing that I know. I, I will say that I don't see nearly as much acne as I did 20 right. years ago, you know, because my clinic's so much different. But you see a lot of acne. You see a lot of acne scars. And yeah. a lot of people come in, especially, and it's, it's tragic because we have a lot of these young men and women mm-hmm. who have significant scars. And really, what do we have to offer them right now? It's laser laser resurfacing we have laser stimulation of collagen underneath but you talked about microneedling right. and then doing PRP right. so that's something you would be you yes, do well, too right exactly and you know the microneedling device um, does you know create micro channels and well, what do you mean by micro channels so let's say you're taking this device that that you're actually making little tiny holes right little tiny holes micro channels are actual holes um, there's 32 very small needles at the top of it, and the device actually works to um, get down into the dermal layer there and you know helps with acne scarring. It's FDA approved for acne scarring um, microneedling device. Um, we So essentially you would usually do three treatments for that, but the results are remarkable for acne scarring, and that's why, again, we see so much uh, of this. I see a ton of acne, and um, so do other providers here. and you know, people who are on the medication isotretinoin or various treatments, you know, when they complete their um, treatment, they can come back within six, eight months, up to a year, and then we can always address that as well um, when they follow up. Okay, so let's go over that one more time. So if someone came in with acne, right, and and when you mentioned isotretinoin, a lot of people might know that as Accutane. Correct. So I think, you know, there is really no more Accutane anymore. And the reason being is there's just no brand name Accutane. And I have a lot of people come in and say, oh, they don't make Accutane anymore. It's off the market. And I'm like, well, they they do. It's just called isotretinoin. Right. But let's say most of those patients, they take isotretinoin because they have severe acne and they have scars. Mm -hmm. Now, when you're using that and you say you have an instrument that makes 32. Now, when we when people get shots, right? That's a when like they get a flu shot, that's a pretty small needle. That's probably a 30 or 27 gauge needle. Right. right? When you get your blood drawn at the lab, that's probably an 18 gauge needle, okay, yes. 14 gauge. Those are huge needles. Those things look really big. And when you go to the hospital and you get a big IV and or you're in trouble, they put a big 14 gauge in. Yes. That thing Sounds looks like intimidating, 32. Yeah. <laughs> but when you're talking about 32 needles, the reason why I want to explain <laughs> this is I want people to, to not get scared by right. that. We're talking about microscopic size yes. needles, yes. and they're making microscopic holes. Yes, yeah, so much that you're not, you know, you'll have topical numbing, but you also won't be feeling pain during the process. Yeah, that's you'll what I wanted to get across. You'll be very comfortable during the process, um, and it's simple, truly. Yeah. Now, when you're using that PRP with microneedling, mm. are you injecting with the needle the PRP, or are you using it as a gel or a you know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah, so I want you to explain that. There's two um, different techniques. The first, um, and there's research on both, um, with both promising, but um, you can do the whole entire procedure and you have, like I said, those micro injuries or those tiny open channels made by the needles um, that afterwards you apply the PRP right after. Or so you, it's just a topical. Yes. Or you microneedle it into the skin as you go. As and a lubricant. Light it as, as a lubricant. Um, and so, it, you know, typically as a lubricant um, is what we'll be doing and we do here. Um, but both, as far as efficacy, both show very similar efficacy. The other thing with using uh, microneedling with the PRP is your healing time. 
no matter what the procedure, but specifically talking about the microneedling, you know, after this procedure, you'll be, you know, looking red or mildly sunburned, you know, you yeah. look red, um, you know, for three or four days after. But with the PRP, it'll be one to two days usually um, of having the redness and healing time and those growth factors. Everything is just doing even better to heal the skin and kind of rejuvenate that fully. That's awesome yeah so using them together is something and you know ideally two people aren't just they have multiple concerns so ideally if we are drawing your blood we might as well use the PRP for multiple things so you almost come in you might um, have the microneedling with the PRP then you might there's also um, we use a cannula technique to um, inject it into the flush the area under the eye the tear troughs for dark circles and then you can inject it to your scalp as well all in one yeah, so that's another thing that people constantly ask me oh, yeah. is the dark circles under the eyes. And, you know, for the longest time, you know, th th there's all these cosmetic companies that come by here and say, oh, so-and-so will get mm -hmm. rid of the dark circles. It's a waste of time, yeah, right? It's a waste of money. It does not work, right? And then, really, some people are genetically predisposed, predisposed to that. Some people is from allergies. Some people, um, part of it is is lifestyle. Yes. If you smoke, if you hydration. If you, yeah, sunlight, etc. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes it's just bad luck. Yeah. You know, you just you get it. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of times there are treatments for it. There are plastic surgery potential treatments. You can do fillers. You can do those things. But what you're saying is you might be able to go in on not everybody, obviously, because you have to evaluate patients. Sure. Sure. But you might be able to go in and use PRP as an adjunctive treatment. So if you're doing something else and you say, hey, listen, I got this left over, you want to try it yes. here? And what it does is it stimulates both the dermal growth and the subcutaneous tissue yes. to be more youth-like. Yes, and it's and as far as downtime for it and everything, you have minor swelling. But again, when it's your own plasma, side effects and the, the things that people are feel, fearful of with other procedures, like we were kind of talking about, it doesn't. You don't have it with that, and it's worth you know attempting to see if you can have some results. And maybe all that concealer you're putting on, you won't have to anymore um, with something that you know can help with that. You know what I also like about this too is that you, you know we do a lot of Botox around here, mm -hmm. which I think is probably you're talking about of minor invasive procedures. Botox is mm -hmm. the safest mm -hmm. procedure around. Mm -hmm. I think what we do see a lot though is we see a lot of fillers. Uh, we do fillers here mm -hmm. obviously in our practice. We do a lot of it. Um, Fillers, though, you are taking a foreign product um, and injecting this foreign product into an area. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, they're very safe, but they run inherent risk that are so much greater than Botox. Mm -hmm. The risk of you having a severe issue with Botox is so minuscule. We're talking mm -hmm. probably in the one to 100,000 mm -hmm. range, whereas we're talking about fillers you probably have a five out of a hundred chance of having a pretty decent side effect of oh. fillers and maybe one or two out of a hundred of having significant side effects mm -hmm. if done incorrectly. Now, if you're seeing providers and they're doing it correctly, I think that risk is way lower. Right. Probably more on like the one in a thousand to one in two thousand range. Correct. So your risk goes down. But what you're talking about is taking your own 
blood, mm -hmm. your own platelets, the risk of having that done is really minimal. Minimal. Correct? Yes, mild swelling, maybe bruising at the injection site, but again, yeah. minimal as far as the risk and also um, downtime is the main thing with a lot of this too. Um, and you know, evaluating price point and all that. It's just you know, hopefully gonna continue to be very reasonable yeah. for patients with good results. Well, we're almost done. I I know mm -hmm. you're ready to go, but I'm not uh, ready to. Yeah. So real quickly, there are some other things that we I think in the future we might be using this for. I can foresee in my mm -hmm. part of our practice. So some things I notice. Um, one thing I might consider doing it for. I do a lot of Mohs surgery. The majority of our wounds actually heal extremely they well. Do. Although there are some areas specifically where we do lower leg cancers, those areas for, for people that are listening, it's in front of the shin bone, around the ankles, on the side of each calf area. The lower you get, especially as people get more mature, and uh, they have a lot of what we call venous stasis changes or arterial disease, meaning either their vein system doesn't work as well or their mm -hmm. artery system doesn't work as well. It's hard. I would suspect, and I don't talk to a lot of other uh, uh, individuals who are doing these surgeries, mm -hmm. but I would suspect out of all the places that I do surgery, that is my hardest. Mm -hmm. And we have to do skin grafts, we have to um, do, sometimes I do something called a halo graft, which I try to reserve. Mm -hmm. um, but what I find is that out of all the areas that we have complications, that's the biggest area I have complications. Hardly anywhere do I have any other major complications, and that's because it doesn't heal well. Right. I think the blood flow is limited here. Right. I also think the, quote, growth factors right. that we run. Mm -hmm. I think those are limited and what I might start considering doing mm -hmm. in the future mm -hmm. is for those individuals where we have side effects, dehiscence, mm -hmm. that means the stitches pop out right. and the wound opens or we have ulcers, I think I'm going to incorporate this mm -hmm. into my practice as a part of or a point of wound healing. Uh, and you've seen this in the literature, oh, correct? Gosh, yes. I think it would be very beneficial for those specific patients and just we, we see a lot of wounds in general. I mean, people come in from outside locations or things like that. So Yeah, we, we refer a lot of patients mm -hmm. to wound care, mm -hmm. not specifically my patients that we've caused, but yeah. I, I see a lot of ulcers, specifically sure. venous stasis and arterial mm -hmm. ulcers that I think wound care has gotten so specific now. A lot of times we used to take care of these things and then I think a lot of times we can take care of most mm -hmm. of them, but I do send some out. Yeah. Um, but I think this platelet uh, PRP is going to be a significant uh, benefit. I think other ulcers as well. And then I, I think we're going to come up with a lot of other things we might be mm -hmm. using this for. I think for rejuvenation, right. for making people look more youthful, I think as time goes on, we are going to see a lot more so of too. this. Mm -hmm. And I think people are going to be a little more receptive to it because it's their own body. You're right. literally taking your own... Um, excellent source of growth. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously we all yes. think we're pretty awesome, right? Yeah. And you're taking your own awesomeness and injecting it into yourself and making you even more awesome. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. I know that sounds funny, but think about that, really. 
Is that not cool? I mean, how could you say no? Yeah, how can you say no to yourself? So how do people... I know, I have my office manager. Her name is Deborah Jackson. I will tell you that if you asked her, she would probably think she could take her own awesomeness and inject it back into herself (laughs) as a cycle. And she would think, oh, I'm just 10 times more awesome. And I think that she would probably be on to this PRP thing like it was just, you know. Oh, uh, she's already on the, she's she's on the PRP yeah, train right, here. Right. What, so how do people schedule for this? I mean, I know how, but how would you tell your patients? Well, the way I tell my patients is they come in and then, especially now, what I'm seeing is mm-hmm. a lot of acne scars. Mm-hmm. And then we're also seeing, especially with the hair loss thing, what I'm saying sure. is, is, hey, let's, let's have you schedule with either with Carrie mm-hmm. Ann or CA. And Katie, mm-hmm. and then we'll we'll have you guys evaluate, and mm-hmm. then and then decide how you're going to treat. Um, and I I think that's really the way to go. Um, and if you're listening and you happen not to be uh, in my area, um, I, Academic Alliance in Dermatology, we we have 20 some offices uh, all in the Tampa area. Uh, we're actually now over in Orlando too, mm-hmm. so we have many providers who are doing this therapy. So this is going to be something that is mm-hmm. going to be available, and it's going to be something that you can reach without going a significant far right. distance. Um, but if you just happen to be in the Tampa area and you, and you want to contact CA here, Carrie and Bame, I know I keep calling her CA. Um, but uh, uh, just call, make an appointment. It's Academic Alliance in Dermatology. And if you just go online, it's right there. You'll see her profile. Uh, she's in the Tarpon Springs and the Trinity office location. Uh, she will evaluate you and then subsequently discuss how you be treated. I think you'll love her. I, I, we have patients who love her now. She's stealing patients from me on a daily basis. That happens. Um, so I, I, I think that would be great. And uh, do you have any other things you want to talk about today? No, I, I mean, these are two of my favorite topics is prevention or in identifying melanoma and PRP now. So I'm covered. All right. Well, I know <laughs> at some point we're going to have you back on a podcast. Oh, yeah. I think, um, you know, we'll probably have you on in six months, mm-hmm. a year or so. Um, and then, so I don't think everybody, I think uh, people are going to hear from you again. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I think you're going to be more and more uh, busy with this PRP mm-hmm. thing. Uh, I'm glad you're doing it, to be yeah, honest with I'm you. I, it gives me a whole nother alternative mm-hmm. to treating patients where I had no real alternative mm-hmm. in the past. So it's good talking to you. Yes, and, and I'll be back soon, guys. Yeah, Thank and you. happy birthday on Friday. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Uh, and that you know, it kind of stinks for you because, you know, obviously we do lunch here on Thursday and Friday for everybody. So when you have your birthday on Friday, you're really not getting any added benefits. So we might have to give lunch to everybody on Monday too. <laughs> Uh, so that uh, we can celebrate. Well, thank you. And since you tried to embarrass me two years ago with my uh, birthday, I'm going to have to do that <laughs> for you this year. I okay? better watch out. All right. Well, All thank right. you for having me. All right. Thanks for coming on. All right. Bye.